may be seated. Most modern scientists and sociologists will tell you that our times are evolving, that they are progressing. Many people now even label themselves as progressive, as a mark, as those who are leading this evolution, leading this movement toward the future. But brothers and sisters, I see it differently than that. I do not see us living in days that are evolving, rather I see us living in days that are devolving. No longer do we question the morality of promiscuous sex. Instead, today, we question the very DNA of marriage to begin with. We live in days that our people are saying that we do not have enough depressants. We do not have enough drugs. We do not have enough stimulants. Can we legalize more of it? Can we numb ourselves further? We live in a time in which we uphold the life of the tree frog and play commercials on television that make you want to cry over dogs in shelters. And yet we see our unborn as an inconvenience to be eradicated. Brothers and sisters, the moral decay is not decreasing, it is instead increasing. We are not evolving, we are not progressing, we are devolving, regressing. You know, throughout the scriptures, the people of God frequently wake up in foreign lands. Sometimes it's like we're going to see in Daniel and it's the result of the unfaithfulness of the people of God and realizing the judgment of God, and so they wake up in Babylon. Sometimes it's like what we see in Acts and in 1 Peter, and it's faithful men and women of God that have been placed in a foreign land according to the sweet providence of God. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, as a Christian, wherever you woke up this morning, you woke up in a foreign land. You are a sojourner here. You are, are a foreigner here. This land is not your home. And so as we live in the midst of a society that is devolving, as we live in the midst of a society that is regressing, what we are finding and what we will continue to find, the scriptures teach us, is we will continue to find hostility toward the people of God. We will find ourselves living ever more in a culture that finds our beliefs, finds our ethics, finds our morality to be archaic. And outdated. So brothers and sisters, I ask us this morning. How are the people of God to live in the midst of a hostile culture? How are the people of God to live in the midst of a culture that is evermore turning against them? I think we'll see that in the book of Daniel. If you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel, if you'll find the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms. Then you'll find Proverbs, then you'll find Song of Song, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. All right, So just find the middle of the Bible and turn to the right and eventually you're going to find it. I, do, I don't say that to insult your intelligence, but it's probably just a book you don't read all that often. So Daniel, the, fi- the last of the great major prophets that we find in the scriptures. We're going to cover our text in two different sections this morning. And so if you have your Bible, stand with me, and we're going to read the first 
eight, our first seven verses. In Daniel chapter 1, the word of God says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that, are, that the king ate and of the wine that, that, that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, and Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So we come to Daniel, and what we find is we find a difficult reality for the people of God. The people of God have been captured by Babylon. In fact, if you read throughout your Bibles, once the people of God are captured by Babylon, never again in Scripture do we see Israel as an independent and sovereign nation. Israel itself has already been conquered. Judah, which is the southern kingdom, you have the kingdom of Israel divided. You had the northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. After Saul, never again do they have a faithful king in Israel, so they go quicker. Judah has a couple of revivals that are very short-lived. They persevere a bit longer, but here we see the final and ultimate exile and capture of Judah. And never again will the people of God exist as a sovereign nation in the scriptures. In fact, we know Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Some of the artifacts from the temple taken to where false gods were worshipped. And what's ironic here, what's unique here about the way that Daniel explains this is that Daniel seems to give us two different reasons for why Israel, why Judah was captured by Babylon. In verse 1, what does he say? He says that we are, that, that has been captured because Nebuchadnezzar and the great Babylonian empire has laid siege to Jerusalem. And so the great military power of the day, Babylon, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the most influential man perhaps in all of the earth, the owner of nearly all of the Middle East, has come against Israel and Israel simply could not withstand his conquest. Then what happens when we come into verse 2? When we come into verse 2, Daniel gives us another reason. He, he completely puts down Nebuchadnezzar. He completely he puts down the might of the Babylonian army. And he says, why, with, why was Jerusalem given over to Babylon? Why did Judah fall to Nebuchadnezzar? It fell because God gave them to him. The NIV, may, if you have the NIV, it says it, that the Lord God delivered, delivered him over, delivered Judah to Babylon. And so we, we're, we're handed here these two different explanations, these two different reasons that Judah has fallen, these two different reasons that 
now the people of God are in captivity, in exile. Now if you were to ask Nebuchadnezzar, I can tell you what he would have said. If you were to ask Nebuchadnezzar what happened, if you were to ask Babylon what happened, he would have said what happened is what always happens when I come against a country. What happened is, is that little puny Judah was no match for my mighty warriors. What happened is I had more money, I had more resources, I had greater might, I had greater firepower. And when I came against Judah, I took them over because that's what I always do. I am the greatest man alive. I lead the greatest empire in the history of humanity. And when someone comes against me, or when I choose to come against them, they they always fall. But we know. We know that this great king, this great earthly king, one remembered throughout history, was merely a puppet in the hands of a greater king. That this great king of history was merely a puppet in the one who controls and rules over all of history. You see, what Daniel has done in the first two verses is he has given us a comparison, a contrast of two different kingdoms. He is contrasting the greatest kingdoms of the earth, the greatest kingdoms of the world, the greatest kings of the world with the kingdom of God and its sovereign ruler. And so we, we are compelled to take Nebuchadnezzar and the Lord God and to lay them side by side and to contemplate them and to think upon them and to contrast them. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar is mighty. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar has power. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar has gold. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar has money. But Nebuchadnezzar can do nothing that the Lord God does not allow. That what we have in Daniel... With Judah's captivity is not God asleep on the throne. What we have in Daniel 1 is God not being derelict in his duties as the ruler and the provider and the protector of his people. Instead, what we have is we had have God letting his divine providence unfold before us. We see the people of God experiencing the judgment that God had long promised. Did they not repent? And they never repented. We see the word of God coming true that had been preached for centuries up until this moment. Now, this is not about a mighty man. This is about a sovereign God. This is about a God who is reigning from the throne. A God who takes the great men of history and uses them as chess pieces in the strategy of his providence. When we look around us today, it is easy for us to become disenfranchised. It is easy for us to see the hostility and the chaos that surrounds us. It is easy for us to contemplate and to wonder if God has fallen asleep. If God is in fact derelict in his duties. Do you know what the fastest growing religion is in the United States of America? No religion. Since 1990... The number of people in the censuses that have checked no religion has increased by triple. That now, if you go to any American street and you were to talk to four people, one in four of them will tell you that they do not believe that there is a God. 
They do not believe that there is a sovereign ruler. And so what we are seeing now is that there is no cultural benefit to be a part of the church. There is no cultural benefit, business benefit, career benefit to be a part of a Like the culture is not going to look down on you if you don't believe in God. And it's easy for us to see that and as the church and to, to understand the chaos and to understand the hostility and for it to cause our hearts to race and to cause us to get up in arms and wonder if our days are coming to an end. But brothers and sisters, our king is on the throne. Our king is reigning on high. Our king has not fallen asleep. Our king has not even started pacing. Our king is in control. And I don't care if it's Barack Obama. I don't care if it's Donald Trump. I don't care if it's Christopher Hitchens or Stephen Hawking or Bart Ehrman. All of them are nothing but mere puppets in his hand to accomplish his will to his end for his glory. And so as we as Christians look around at Babylon or look around at Judah and see it being captured by Babylon, as we see Nebuchadnezzar taking over our society more and more, let us not become afraid. Let us not grow weary. Let us not get caught up in the tornado of confusion. Instead, let us hold fast to the sovereignty of God. Because if a Christian man or a Christian woman can hold fast to the sovereignty of God, then there is no way their heart can raise when these puppets tell us what's going to happen. Because they just don't know. They just can't see that far. You see, the hardship in Judah was pressing on toward the glory of God. And the hardship in our days, and the hardships in our lives, and the hardships in our society, And the hardships in our churches are doing the same. That because there is a grand maestro bringing all of this orchestra to a grand crescendo, we can be convinced that this is going to play out to his glory. We can be assured that this is going to play out to our good. And as a result, we can be at peace. We can be Calm. uh, Nebuchadnezzar's next move, having captured Judah, is really a brilliant one. He takes all of the best of the youth. Those, it says, without blemish. You know when the other time that phrase is used in in the Bible? It's used in Leviticus to describe the sacrifices that are to be offered to God. Those without blemish. And this is the description that the Bible uses of the men, that, uh, the young men that Nebuchadnezzar seizes from Judah, the nobility, the royals, that he brings into his court. And Nebuchadnezzar really does this for two reasons. It's, it's a brilliantly played move. The first reason that he does this is by taking out the brightest and the best of the youth, he weakens Jerusalem. He weakens Judah. He makes it very difficult for them to stage any kind of rebellion, makes it very difficult for them to stage any kind of uprising. After all, who would fight in that uprising? Who would lead that rebellion? It would be the young, bright, strong warriors, right? He, he, he takes from them the inability to perpetuate their culture to the next generations because who is going to raise up those generations? The young, bright, uh, prosperous men, right? Right? Who's going to do that? They are. So he takes them from Judah 
so, paralyzing the, uh, the economy, paralyzing the culture, paralyzing the society. And at the same time, what he's doing is he's bringing them into Babylon to strengthen Babylon. Babylon is a vast empire. And Nebuchadnezzar was a smart enough man to know that he could not rule all of Babylon by his own wisdom and by his own insight and by his own energy. And so he would bring in these foreigners, the best, the elite, the cream of the crop, and he would bring them into his court. He would educate them and train them up so that then they could help assist him in leading the empire. So essentially what Nebuchadnezzar's goal here is Nebuchadnezzar wants to take a young Jewish boy and he wants to transform him into a young Babylonian man. He wants to take them and strip them of their past culture, strip them of their past allegiances, and now have them pledge their allegiance to Babylon. You see this even changes their names, right? He changes their names from names that give worship and give credit to the Lord God, and instead their new names give credit to the gods of Babylon. He brings them in, and you know what he does? He does exactly what every godless pagan culture has ever done. He educates them, and he entices them. He entices them, and he educates them. He, he brings them into his house, and he wants them to, to experience the Babylonian dream, right? He wants them to come in and fall in love with Babylon. Because, you know, you can't, you can't put a gun to somebody's head and force loyalty, can you? You can't put a, a gun to somebody's head and say, you're never going to come against me. You're never going to rebel against me. You're never going to back. You just can't. It doesn't work that way. Fear is not a good motivator. Fear runs out. People get to a certain place and they're like, I'm just going to, I'll, I'll rather die than endure this. But if you can teach them to love the culture, if you can teach them to want to be a part of the culture, if you can teach them to love your ways and desire your ways and even prefer your ways over the old ways, over the ways of the Jews, then you've got them. You don't have to worry about a rebellion because they don't want to leave your empire anyway. And so what does he do? He feeds them from his table. He says, eat, eat my food. Eat what the king is eating. Come and, and join me in the feast. Taste the greatest of Babylon. Taste meat that you've never had before. Taste vegetables that are hardier than you've ever experienced before. Come and eat with me and enjoy the fruits of Babylon. And then what does he do? He educates them. He teaches them the language and allows them to read the works of the Chaldeans. He engrosses them into the culture that he might properly assimilate them into the empire. So on one hand, you have Nebuchadnezzar saying, look at all I can offer you. Look at the riches I can give to you. Look at the gold that you can have. Look at the prosperity that you can experience. Look at the food that you can eat. And then on the other hand, he's teaching them to love it. Does this not sound familiar? Does this not sound familiar? The Babylonian dream sounds to me a lot like the American dream. In which we give our children a taste of the prosperity. We give our children a taste of the world. We give our children a taste of the fruits of prosperity. And we say, now come, look. 
Then we teach them, we educate them in our ways, we educate them in our enlightenment. So we hold up prosperity and worldliness on one hand, and then we educate them and teach them to love it on the other. While I was in Africa this past September, I witnessed something that I never thought I would witness and almost wish that I could unsee. Chris and John can attest to the fact that while we were there, we became first-hand observers of human trafficking. We were at this, this convenience store, and these, uh, these two young little boys came up to us, and they were in just rags uh, for clothes, and they wanted bread and milk. And so we went into the service station, and we got them bread and milk. And what we saw as, is that they went out the back door of the building. And there was an, an, an older man there. And they began to run with this older man going. Exact, and where we fought, when our eyes followed them, what we saw was, is that back in the back of this gas station, and, and there were uh, young women scantily clad with their hands behind their backs like this. Now, I don't know that they were bound or if they were uh, figuratively or literally, but they were certainly there without any chance. And as I inquired about this, what I learned was is that these pimps would go into these townships like where we were in Boikatsu and they would, they would find these, these young girls, these young children that, the, that had no hope of advancing in life, no hope of rising above where their parents were, no hope of having steady food, no hope of having uh, any kind of, of satisfying life and they would get them hopelessly addicted on drugs, often heroin. And they would get these young children so hopelessly addicted on heroin that then they would take it and they would, they would withhold it from them and they would use it as the, as the means to which enslave them. So the idea here is to, to give them a taste, to give them, to give them just a little bit until they, they are hooked. And then when they are hooked, they are in fact slaves. This is a microcosm of American culture. That we are tasting worldliness and we are tasting it younger and younger. And as we taste it, we are becoming hooked on it until the point that we are in fact slaves to it. We cannot live without what we have. We cannot be happy without what we have. We cannot be satisfied without the, the trappings and the prosperity of our culture. We are in fact the people of God becoming Babylonians. And I want to talk especially to our teenagers and to our college students here. I want to talk especially to you because guess who they're coming after? They're coming after you. You know, here, every scholar that I read said that, that uh, Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all between the ages of 14 and 16. Think about that. They woke up, they're not with their families they're in a foreign land, they're getting a foreign education, they're by themselves, they've been taken from everything that is normal for them, and here they are, there they stand, one way or the other, this ain't going to break this way or that way, it just doesn't matter, we're just going to see what happens here. Why do they go after the young? Why do they go after the teenagers? Why do they go after the college students? Why is it that almost every commercial that you watch on television is aimed at those 25 and younger? They've already got your parents. Your parents are already settled in what kind of fruit loops they're going to eat. Right? Like, like they're not going to break that habit. 
The grandparents already settled into what kind of shoes they're wearing. They're coming after you. They're coming after you because if they can get to you, they've got you forever. And you are young, you're idealistic, you're impressionable, and you will eventually be influential. So if they can get to you, if they can get to you while you're idealistic, if they can get to you while you're impressionable, then one day they're going to be able to to influence all of the culture. One day they're going to be able to influence not just you, but the children that you raise and the children that they raise and the children that they raise. And so what do they do? They give you a taste. They give you a taste. They try to catch your eye. They try to draw you in. And then they teach you to love it. Is it any mystery why our universities are filled with secular atheism and wild parties? On one hand, you have the enemy and he's saying, look at what I can give to you. Look at the good time that you can have. Look how much fun the kingdoms of the world are. And on the other hand, he is teaching you, educating you to love it. Listen to me, young brothers and sisters. You've got to cut through the noise. You've got to cut through the noise. You're going to have a million voices, a million advertisements, a million professors, a million friends, a million parties, and all of them are trying to draw your eyes toward the kingdoms of the world. All of them are trying to to draw you in and to suck you in and to lure you and seduce you. You've got to know the truth. You've got to know the truth. But you can't just know the truth. You've got to love the truth. If you don't love the truth, you're going to be seduced into the world. If you don't love God, you're going to be fall in love with the kings of earth. If you don't love the truth, if you don't delight in the truth, if you don't treasure the truth. Listen to me. I am not offering you in this a life of sacrifice. I am offering you a life of abundance. It is not a sacrifice to give up that which is worthless for that which is priceless. Jesus is better. He is better than your professor. He is better than your friends. He is better than your parties. He is better than your car. He is better than your clothes. He is better than everything your eyes have ever beheld in this earth. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Come to him. Hold fast in him. Stand fast in Christ. Because Christ is infinitely more glorious, infinitely more worthy. How many theories have been disproven of man? And yet how many revelations of God? How many times has the wisdom of man fallen on its face while the sovereignty of God stood strong? Everything you see is fleeting. Everything you see is melting away. Except that which is in the kingdom of God. Do not be sucked in. Do not be lured. Hold fast to the sovereign king. Stand firm in the sovereign king. I want you to see Daniel's response now. We'll begin reading again in verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion 
in the side of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had an understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we see Daniel's response. Daniel and his three friends. They're presented with the best of Babylon. They're being attempted to be brainwashed into becoming Babylonian. And what does Daniel resolve? Daniel resolves that he will not defile himself. In other words, Daniel resolves that he will not become Babylonian. That he will not transfer cultures and as such transfer gods. That Daniel and his friends will remain resolute as the people of God devoted to the Lord God. And so it says that Daniel resolved that he would not eat the food from the king's table. That he would not eat the meat, that he would not drink the wine. And this is interesting. Because why did Daniel choose that? Why did Daniel choose to, to, not, to only eat fruit and vegetables and drink water? I don't think that the reason, as I've heard some propose, that it's because that these foods were offered to false gods. And so Daniel did not want to partake. Because if the foods, was, if the foods were offered to false gods, then certainly the fruit and vegetables would have been offered to false gods as well. I don't think this has anything to do with the Levitical code. I, I don't think it's the result of it not being kosher. As a matter of fact, history tells us that Jews understood that when they were in captivity, they were perhaps be forced to eat foods that were not kosher to carry on as the remnant of God. Here's why I think Daniel didn't eat the food from Nebuchadnezzar's table. Because if he were to eat the food from the table, he would blend in with all of Babylon. What was it that marked the people of God? What was it more than anything else that caused them to stand out as a unique nation among all the nations? As the people of God that were in covenant with the Lord God. Well, we know circumcision, but that's kind of null and void at this point. So what was, what was, what's number two? The way that they ate. The food that they ate. They ate unlike any other culture in all of the world. 
the way they approached the table was unique. And it was, it was known to be their understanding that the Lord had provided this food. The Lord had, and so they would offer him sacrifices. They would offer him for the first fruits of all of their crops. They would, they would withhold from certain meats that the Lord had declared unclean and, and eat those things only which God had said were clean. And so what we have here is we have Daniel and his three friends refusing to blend in with Babylon. The people of God must not blend in with their culture. The people of God must stand out from the culture, must must look unique. Because whenever we blend in, we lose our witness. Could it be? That the reason that the church has no voice in these days is because we live like everybody else, talk like everybody else, buy like everybody else, do like everybody else, and then tell everybody else they ought to believe differently. Could it be that the reason nobody wants to hear us say anything is that we claim to have moral high ground all the while acting and behaving and doing just like everybody else does? When we blend in with America, when we blend in in our high schools, when we blend in in our workplaces, when we blend in in our communities, we forfeit any authority, any ability to speak the truth into their lives. Now what is needed? What is needed is radical lot living, countercultural living. Living that, that, that walks against the current. Living that, that everybody else just thinks, man, that's a little crazy. Like you're offered food from the king's table and you say no thanks, I'll have a glass of water. That's crazy. That's radical. That's insane. You can imagine all the other young men of, 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 of uh, Judah, man, they're saying, I got no choice. The Lord God will forgive me. Man, I'm going to eat up. I'm going to enjoy this buffet. This is going to be a party. And then they look at Daniel and Hananiah, and they've got an okra and a glass of water. You think they, you think they stood out? Don't you, don't you think that people saw them and realized, man, there's just something different. They're, they have greater authority. There's just something extreme about what they live in. Man, it's magnetic. It's magnetic. You ever been around somebody that just actually lives devoted to the Lord? You ever been around somebody, man, it's just like their joy. You can't rock it. It's like you're around them and you just being with them, you feel closer to God. That's what our world needs. That's what our hostile culture needs to see. They need to see people who, who are living against it and, not, and, and don't just claim some moral high ground, but instead live moral lives. The church has no gospel witness because the church has not lived out the gospel. The church has no influence because the church isn't even certain about what it believes. Brothers and sisters, we must stand out from our culture. We must not blend in. We must go and with the grace and truth of the gospel, go wherever the Lord sends us with it and offer it there. Think about how Daniel does this. Think about the, the means to which he gets to this end. Daniel doesn't call the chief eunuch in and point his finger in his face and eviscerate him as a pagan and demand that he give him something reasonable to eat. 
He doesn't go on Facebook and annihilate the eunuch and annihilate all of Babylon that Babylon might somehow see his rantings and repent. What does Daniel do? It says that the eunuch comes to him, that he goes to the eunuch, and he asks him, what a novel idea. Hey, hey, eunuch, would it be okay, like, if I just, if I eat fruits and vegetables instead of having all of this, like, could, I, could you just withhold that from me? Then the eunuch says, well, I can't do that. Like, you don't understand, like, like Neb's a little crazy. He'll take my head clean off if you get skinny. Like, you can't get skinny, dude. Like, he will lop this joker right off my head. And what does Daniel do? He actually shows concern for the eunuch's plight. He says, well, well, then what if we just tried it for 10 days? What if we just tried it for 10 days? 10 days is nothing in the scope of three years. So let's just try it for 10 days. And if I start looking scraggly, it's over. We'll end it right then and there. Think about how Daniel does this. And then even at the end, when Daniel's before Nebuchadnezzar, does Daniel go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, you wicked king, how dare you take me out of my homeland? How dare you give me a pagan education? No, they go with grace and with honor. Daniel is painting for us a picture of what it looks like for a Christian man, a person of God, to live in the midst of a hostile culture. See, the church cannot let the hostility of the world infiltrate us. We cannot begin to reflect the tone of the world in our tone. We cannot begin to re reflect the ostentation that we see in the posts of others begin to find itself in our own posts. We cannot allow the harshness of the world to negate our grace. We cannot allow the meanness of the world to undo the fruit of the Spirit which contains gentleness and kindness and love. Now how are we to stand out from the culture? We are not to stand out from the culture in our ostentation. We are to stand out from the culture in our radical grace. That no matter what they throw at us, no matter how they try to put us down, no matter how many times they try to kill us or kill the church, that we just keep on living with grace. We just keep on infiltrating their meanness with gentleness. That we just keep on, and in truth, and with, that, with courage, and with valor, we just keep on meeting hostility with kindness. After all, what takes, more, what takes greater courage anyway? What takes greater discipline? What takes greater self-control? Because didn't Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but of power. And of love and of self-control. This is how the Christian stands out. This is what sets the Christian apart. This is what marks the church. This is what gives credibility to the message. How are you living? How are you addressing a hostile culture? It gets better. Now we're to the good part. Alright? Now we're to the good part. What happens to Daniel and his three friends? What happens to them? Now look, some of you have read ahead in Daniel. You know that there are hard days ahead. But you also know that throughout the book of Daniel happens exactly as it happens in Daniel 1. 
that in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of hostility, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, what happens to the people of God? They prosper. They prosper. And why do they prosper? It is not because they themselves are courageous. It is not because they themselves are wise. It is not because they themselves are just better than everybody else. They prosper because God gives them everything they need to prosper. Three different times in Daniel chapter 1, it says, and God gave. Begins in verse 2, right? God gave them over to Babylon, but he didn't stop there. God gave his people to Babylon, but he didn't leave them there alone. Go to verse 9. What does it say? And God gave them compassion. God gave them favor. You go to verse 17. What does it say? And God gave them understanding. God gave them wisdom. God gave them learning. God gave his people exactly what they would need to stand firm and prosperous amidst a collapsing world. Can I just tell you something? Your God is on the throne. Your God is not derelict. Your God is not asleep. No, your God wins. And you win with him. And he will give you everything that you need to survive in this world. No matter how mean, no matter how hostile, no matter how volatile it becomes. You will prosper, people of God. Because God will ensure your prospering. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be wealthy. I'm not saying you're going to have a a fat bank account. I'm not saying you're going to drive the nicest thing the world has to offer, but that's not how Christians define success anyway. We define success as faithfulness and nearness to God. And God is certain to give every believer, every one of his children, exactly what they need, that their faith might persevere, that their faith might prosper, that they might know that he is near. You see, the truth is that the gospel always prospers in the midst of hostility. That whenever the church is persecuted, there you will find the church its strongest. Church history tells us that the church began to struggle most uh, ferociously with impurity in the church about 300, about the year 300, when Constantine made it national, empire-wide across all of Rome. While I was in Africa... We, I was with a man named Jeffrey, and he told me a remarkable story that I think illustrates this point. He said that he was preaching one day, and that there was a witch doctor that came and stood on the outskirts of the audience. And you understand that in Swaziland, to be a witch doctor, it has to be 100% verified by eyewitnesses that you lived for seven days and seven nights under the water. And if you don't think those things are true, you don't understand the divination that the Bible speaks of. And this man himself had accomplished that. He had lived for seven days and seven nights underneath the water. And yet here he is hearing a faithful gospel preacher preach about the word of God. And as this witch doctor heard the word of God preached, his heart was softened by the spirit of God. And he broke and he professed faith in Christ and repented of his sin and renounced himself as a witch doctor. Now, you think, well... Awesome. But you see, to renounce yourself as a witch doctor, to proclaim, your, to proclaim something else as being God instead of the ancestral, ancestral gods, was to owe yourself death. 
that when he went back to his village to tell them what had happened about Jesus was to put his neck on the guillotine and tell them to cut it off. This man went back and the village loved him and they did not put him down. They endured his beliefs and Jeffrey said that every single day this man walked through these horrible roads, what would have been a 15 or 20 minute drive, so you can imagine how far the walk is every Sunday to Jeffrey's church. And Jeffrey would preach, and every week, man, this guy was just faithful to come week in and week out. Well, just a few weeks ago, the man passed away. And in Swaziland, they do funerals the way I wish we did funerals. Like they, their, their funerals are a party. All right. So one of the things they do is they do these, these stay up all night things. And so all night long they bring in different preachers. And they're just preaching. 15 minutes at a time. They're just preaching. Well, Jeffrey was one of the preachers. And Jeffrey said that I preached. And he said, I just, I just saw people looking at me like I've never seen people looking at me before. And I'm preaching and I'm preaching and I'm preaching. And I, and I go and I sit down. He said, and then before I know it, I'm just surrounded by this huge crowd of people. He said, and on that day, many of those from the village of the witch doctor came to know faith in Christ. And he said, they looked at me and they said, we want your church here. Not another church. Not a different church. We want your church here. And while I was there, the Lord allowed me the privilege to preach the very first service in that church. You see, it's easy to back away from hostility. It's easy for us to be frightened into becoming isolationist and bubble-wrapped Christians. But if we will stand firm, if we will stand with courage, if we will live with grace, the power of the gospel will overcome all of these barriers and many will be won to Christ. Do you want to know when revival comes? I've heard so many different explanations in my life of when revival comes. Let me tell you when I believe revival comes. Revival comes when the people of God are resolved to live out the gospel and are willing to die for it. That's when revival will come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we just acknowledge just so many flaws in ourselves. We acknowledge so many struggles in our own lives. So many times we are swept away in the currents of the world. So many times we are, we are caught up in the things that we see in the longings of our flesh. So many times, Lord, we take the hostility of the world and we adopt it as our own tone. Oh, but God, would you convict our hearts? God, would you set your people aside? Would you give your people a gospel witness from the youngest to the oldest, from those in college to those in retirement? God, would you set us aside and mark us different by the gospel? God, would you bring revival? Would you bring revival among this body when we resolve that we will live out the gospel even when it costs us our lives and thus we can, this world can take nothing from us? Lord, stand us apart, not in ostentation, but in grace and in the anointing of your Spirit among us. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.